and invite you to open up to our scripture passage today. And uh, we're continuing in the book of Exodus. Uh, we're going to read Exodus uh, 10, 1 through 29, um, which is the uh, whole chapter. So Exodus uh, chapter 10 in its entirety. Uh, then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, so they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will bring locusts in your country tomorrow. They will cover the face of the ground so it cannot be seen. They will devour what little you have left after the hail, including every tree that is growing in your fields. They will fill your houses and those of all your officials and all the Egyptians. Something your parents, neither your parents nor ancestors have ever seen from the day they settled this land till now. Then Moses turned and left Pharaoh. For his officials said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so they may worship their, the Lord their God. Do you not yet realize that Egypt is ruined? Then Moses said to Aaron, then, sorry, Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. Go, worship the Lord your God, he said, but tell me who, you will, who will be going. Moses answered, we will go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, and with our flocks and herds, because we are to celebrate a festival to the Lord. Moses said, sorry, Pharaoh said, the Lord be with you. If I let you go, along with all your women and children, clearly you are bent on evil. No, have only the men go and worship the Lord, since that's what you've been asking for. Then Moses and Aaron were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over Egypt so that the locusts swarm over the land and devour everything growing in the fields, everything left by the hail. So Moses stretched out his staff over Egypt, and the Lord made an east wind blow across the land all that day and all that night. By morning, the wind had brought the locusts. They invaded all Egypt and settled down in every area of the country in great numbers. Never before had there been such a plague of locusts, nor will there ever be again. They covered all the ground until it was black. They devoured all that was left after the hail, everything growing in the fields and the fruit on the trees, nothing green remained on tree or plant in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague away from me. Moses then left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. The Lord changed the wind to a very strong west wind, which caught up the locusts and carried them into the Red Sea. Not a locust was left anywhere in Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky, and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. But Moses said, You must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. 
Our livestock too must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshiping the Lord our God. And until we get there, we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. This is God's word. Our Father, we ask that you would speak uh, to us today. We pray that your spirit would be alive in everyone's hearts so that they would hear your word that you would do the work in our hearts to make us alive to you, that you would mend the things that are broken and show us where our hearts are hard against you and your providence and your will. Father, we need your spirit to act. We need you to make us new in Jesus and do it through your powerful word, we pray. I pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, not that long ago, I saw this uh, GoFundMe uh, account or, or drive for a young couple that had started this home project to add another bedroom to their aging home for their growing family. And as I said, it was an an old house, at at least 80 years old. And if you've ever done a home project, especially in old homes, there's always some surprises, right? And they turned out to discover way more surprises than they thought. So when they started the demolition, they were adding a, a bedroom to the back of the house and they discovered termite damage. And then as they continued to remove the exterior walls, they discovered even more termite damage, and in particular, the floor sills, which are the, basically the pressure-treated pieces of wood that sit atop the concrete foundation that connect the foundation to the rest of the house, had also been di- badly damaged by termites. You know, so the very things that were supposed to hold the house up had been turned into cardboard. And then the bad news kept coming. They discovered that this old house, the foundation, as they always do, had settled and cracked in key areas, and there were large gaps between the foundation and the the joists and the floorboards, so it wasn't even clear what was holding this house up anymore. And suddenly what had come, began as a $60,000 project to add another bedroom, turned into a $400,000 project, as essentially they had to bulldoze the entire home and start it again from the foundation up, right? Because the home wasn't on a solid foundation. And it didn't matter how much work they did to make the rest of the house look pretty, if it wasn't resting on a solid foundation, it eventually would crumble and fall. No matter how much money they spent on it, the foundation needed to be strong. And if it wasn't, everything would fall apart. And I think that is a similar picture to what is happening as we work our way through the plagues. Right? What we see is that the very foundation of Egypt is beginning to crumble. The things that they thought had made Egypt strong are starting to be washed away from under them. It gets to the point where Pharaoh's officials go and tell Pharaoh, don't you realize that Egypt is ruined? How much longer are you going to refuse to let them go? As we've been working through the plagues, what we see is, it, is that Egypt is essentially unraveling It's a reversal of creation, bringing Egypt back into this chaotic, uncreated state. And see, Egypt and Pharaoh is a picture of what happens to anyone who refuses to humble himself or herself before God. You lose that foundation of your life and everything begins to crumble. 
God is the foundation of everything that is good. Right? He is the foundation of all of creation and its beauty and its order. He is the foundation of life and joy and goodness. And you might think, oh, look, I've got all these things without God. But what you don't realize is underneath all those things is the God who is sustaining them. You get rid of him, eventually the rest will topple. And we're working our way through the book of Exodus in this series that we're called Three Gifts, looking at these three gifts that God gives his people. And in the first section, we're looking at the gift of redemption. And what I want you to remember this morning is that God is the foundation of everything. God is the foundation of everything. We're going to look at it in just two points. First, he's the foundation of our hearts. And then second, he's the foundation of creation. So the foundation of our hearts. We're looking at the eighth and ninth plagues, which round out the third cycle of plagues. And this brings us to the climax of the plagues, which set the stage for basically the final blow, the death of the firstborn. And in this first point, this sermon will be a little bit different than some of the others, where I'm not going to go into the detail so much of the plagues, but we're going to really dive into this one thing that keeps showing up that I know a lot of you have been wondering about, which is that phrase that shows up almost every plague, talking about Pharaoh's heart. His heart was hardened. And we see this paradox through the plague narratives. Sometimes, mostly in the early plagues, the text says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. But then it also says, like in verse 1 of our passage, go to Pharaoh, for I, God, have hardened his heart. And this wording can make us uncomfortable. Like, why is God blaming Pharaoh if he's the one that hardened his heart, right? Is, is he, you know, setting up for a trap that he can never win? And it can confuse us. Wait, is Pharaoh's heart because of God or because of Pharaoh? Now, if you're hoping to get the definitive answer to this, you're going to be disappointed, right? Because people have been wondering about this for thousands of years and we're not going to come, you know, we're not going to find the answer in 30 minutes. But what I want you to do is to at least get some tools to help you think about this, but also show how this, this kind of paradox that we have reveals that God is the foundation of our hearts. Now, we're going to maybe jump in a little more deeply than we would do in a sermon, but some theological categories are helpful here. So in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is our church's statement of faith, uh, it says in chapter 5, God, the creator of all things, upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least. So it's essentially saying that God is the foundation of everything from the greatest, Pharaoh, to the least, locusts. And it continues. He exercises his most wise and holy providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and unchangeable counsel of his own will through the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. All right, so there's these are very dense statements, but it's pointing out that God works out everything that happens according to his desires for his glory. And we see this in the plagues, right? Go back to verse one of our passage. God says, I, Pharaoh, I have hardened Pharaoh and his officials' hearts so that I may perform these signs of mine, so that you can pass these stories on to your children and grandchildren and know that I am God above all gods. And so uh, God is saying, I even know and, and in some way can influence and, and have foreordained what Pharaoh and his officials do. We see the same thing last week when God says 
in chapter 9 that, you know, I didn't need to use 10 plagues against you, Pharaoh. I could have done it all in one. But this is my big plan, 9.16. I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So God works everything, even bad things, for his glory, to show that he is worthy of all worship. There is not a single thing that has happened or will happen, or maybe you're wrestling with this week or even this moment, that has not been allowed or even planned for by God. Right From the smallest, most insignificant thing to the things that change the course of your life, from the good to the bad, God is over all of it. Now, then people sometimes ask, well, what does this mean? We're just kind of puppets for God to, you know, have fun with and play with us? Well, no, the Westminster Confession continues in chapter 5. Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass unchangeably and infallibly, yet by the same providence, he orders them to occur according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily freely or contingently. Now, this is where it gets super confusing, right? The idea here is starting uh, with Thomas Aquinas, who was this Italian Catholic theologian. He lived in the 1200s. He came up with these categories of, we could say, first or primary cause, and then secondary causes. And the idea is that God is the primary or first cause of everything, right? Like he's the reason or the foundation behind why there's anything. So you can choose to lift your arm up, but you can only do that because God gave you an arm and he gave you muscles and he gave you a brain that can control that arm, right? God is behind even your ability to make those choices. Everything traces its origin back to God. But though God is the first cause of all things, he often works through this other category of secondary causes. And this is kind of this fuzzy space between God's plan and our choices, and how that kind of mingles together. And secondary causes are made up of everything from laws of nature are usually considered under that, right? You can drop an apple and it falls because God has written the laws of gravity, a secondary cause. But now these secondary causes can also be things like what you choose to do, like what shoes you're wearing this morning, or what you ate for breakfast. These are choices you made, but guess what? God is even in control of those things, right? He, he, he doesn't just know what you will choose, but your choice is exactly what he planned, right? Now, this is, gets even harder for us to wrap our minds around sometimes. Uh, Philip Ryken describes it this way. This does not mean that God forces people to do things against their will or that everything in the universe is moved by some immediate exercise of his divine power, right? He's not saying that God controls you like a puppeteer, right? And makes you move and do this and that thing, right? No, we make these choices. He says, instead, God typically works out his purposes through human decisions, natural laws, and the many causes and reactions that are constantly at play in ordinary life, what the Westminster Confession refers to as second causes. Okay, so with those categories, Scripture will often present us this thing that is kind of this paradox. Humans make choices. God is in control of it all. And most errors occur when we try to explain away that tension or paradox instead of kind of holding both of these things up 
together. Right? And, and one thing that we need to remember is that for us to understand how God works, particularly in these really tough ways, is kind of like trying to get, I don't know, you know when I was in high school, we had those TI-83 graphing calculators, right? It's, and I think they have them today, right? Like, that is like trying to get your TI-83 graphing calculator to render the latest you know, HD 4K video game, right? It does not have the CPU power to do that. It will spend infinity trying to work that out and not get much closer. And, and that's the same with between us and God. His CPU power is infinitely greater than ours. So there's certain things we will never understand. But another thing that is helpful in all this is to remember that your choices, my choices, aren't as free as you think they are. Right? Like, not every choice you make is just like flipping a coin. Hey, what am I going to do today? Uh, Wheaties or oat bran? Flip the coin and see what we do, right? Even what socks to wear. Even a choice as arbitrary as that has actually a lot of things that go into it. Right? So, for instance, even if it's subconsciously, for instance, you probably picked, your, when you picked your socks this morning, picked a clean pair of socks, right? Not one from the dirty clothes bin. Unless you're like my kids or probably some of your kids. That's when they don't have any socks, they just pull them out from the dirty clothes, right? Now, you might pick socks to match your outfit. Or you might have picked socks that are comfortable. Maybe you just have one type of socks, right? You buy the 30-pack at Costco, and, but even there, it's not like every sock had the same chance of being picked, right? You probably picked the ones at the top of the pile instead of rummaging down to get the ones at the bottom because they're all the same, right? And it's not like if you have four socks to pick, Every sock has a 25% chance of getting picked. Right? There are all these other factors that make some more likely than others to be picked. And if God knows every single one of these details, and he knows all the other details that go into kind of your decision-making tree, he will know what socks you pick, even if it's your choice. Right? But your choice, like I said, it's not as, even as random as flipping a coin. Our decisions are never arbitrary or indifferent, but they are rooted in all kinds of things that we desire or what we fear or what we love. Marketers have known this forever, right? It's why at the grocery store, the, the vendors will pay more money to put their uh, cheese at eye level than at the top of the shelf or the bottom of the shelf because they know the cheese gets a boost if it's at eye level than the cheese at the bottom of the shelf. It's why in the uh, cereal aisle, they pay money to put all the kids' cereal at the bottom of the shelf, right? Because they know that then the kid can grab it himself, put it in your cart, and now you're the bad guy if you have to take it out, right? They know how these things work. And it's why you're never tempted to buy a bunch of cabbage when it's on sale at the grocery store in the same way that you're tempted to buy a bunch of you know, Tillamook small batch ice cream when it's on sale. Right? There are all kinds of things that factor into why we choose what we choose. Your decisions reflect what you love, what you desire, what you think is important. Your decisions are rooted in your deepest instincts and emotions. They're rooted in your past, in terms of things that maybe went well or things that went horribly, and now you are afraid of that. And if someone really knows you, and if they know your heart, they have a better chance of knowing how you'll decide certain things, right? And who knows your heart better than even you? Well, it's God. Right? Who knows your deepest desires and instincts? It's God. He made you, after all. He knows the programming of your heart. 
He knows how those little decisions work through these decision trees and output what you do. And so he knows you better than you even know yourself. And that can help us understand some of the difficulties here in our passage and elsewhere in Scripture. We've got to ask ourselves, well, what perspective are we looking at when, when Scripture talks about these things? From the perspective of a first cause, God is in control of everything, or the perspective of a secondary cause, where God works through humans that make choices. And so in verse 1, when God says, I have hardened Pharaoh's heart, he is speaking from the perspective of primary causes. Right? He was behind this whole situation and how it got this way, and he planned it from the beginning. But then in verse 3, when God says through Moses, how long will you, Pharaoh, refuse to humble yourself before me? Right? He's saying, Pharaoh, this is your choice. And he's speaking now from that perspective of secondary causes. This is Pharaoh's decision. Now, this can all be a, a bit philosophical, right? And you're like, well, what in the world does this matter for me? Well, I think it's important, and we see how it matters when we realize we're all a little bit like Pharaoh. Every one of us continually makes decisions that are bad for us and for those around us sometimes. As much as you know, I shouldn't do this thing. Right? I need to stop this. I need to stop reacting in this way. I need to stop doing that. No matter how hard you try, sometimes you feel like it is impossible for you to change. We fall back into those old patterns and habits and addictions. I bet for every one of you, you know, maybe there's some things you're oblivious to, but there's probably a whole lot of things that you know you shouldn't do, you know are faults of yours, and that's not the problem of knowing it. The problem is, is actually changing in it. To have the willpower, the desire, the strength to do it. I mean, don't you feel like you're a captive, a slave to your own desires or addictions sometimes? Or you have people that you love. Right? And you see the cycle in their life over and over again, no matter how much they promise, oh, I'm going to change this time. I'm making this, th this thing, it's different this time, right? Six weeks later, six months later, whatever it is, you see them back in the same old cycles of self-harm, same excuses. And you wonder, what's the hope? It's why so many of us, we continually battle with things like anxiety and depression or extreme apathy towards life. But you wish it was as easy as just telling yourself, okay, I'm going to stop being anxious today. I'm going to be happy today. But no matter how much you might say that, the pathways of your heart are too worn. And after a little bit, you get tired of trying to trudge out this new way and slide right back into those well-worn paths of worry or anxiety or whatever it might be. And you're so discouraged by it. You say, will it ever change? Is there any hope? And that's why going back to what we talked about is so helpful. The only hope in true and lasting change is the one who knows your heart even better than you do. He knows you. He knows why you keep screwing up. He knows what's at the root of those bad decisions that you keep making. And the path to true change starts with humbling yourself before God and saying, I need you. I can't do it on my own. I can't fix this. I need you, God. And that's what Pharaoh's central sin is, his pride, his refuse to, refusal to humble himself. That's what leads to his downfall. Again, verse 3. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? It's another way of saying that well-known line from Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And the idea of knowledge in that deepest sense that includes change. 
the way that you find freedom is not by trying harder, but by giving your heart to God and opening it up and let Him rewire some of those crossed circuits, letting Him trudge out and break new trails and pathways for how your heart is going to work. And recognizing that He's the skilled surgeon that can bring you healing. And He does it through Jesus, who is the perfect and ideal human, right? Who did it all perfectly. The one whose heart was actually in tune with the glory of God. Whose desires harmonized with the beauty of God. And to be a Christian means to look to Jesus and have your life so united with Him that the supreme beauty of Jesus starts flowing into your heart and day by day, week by week, year by year, slowly you start to see His love and life needing its way into the rest of your body. And that's where change comes. And this brings us into our next point. God is also the foundation of creation. Well, right before this, we had the plague of hail, which you looked at last week. Which, remember, it destroyed all the crops that were in harvest at that point. But there were some other crops that were left that were, you know, hadn't, weren't ready for harvest and had grown up since that hail. But then the locust plague comes and basically brings the final blow, death blow, to anything living in the land. And locusts are, we didn't realize this, I think, until just about 100 years ago or so, locusts are actually just grasshoppers, but they're like mutant grasshoppers. When they are, when the weather conditions are just right, you know, normally a lot of the little eggs would die off, but when the weather conditions are just right, tons of grasshopper eggs survive, right? And so they get used to all rubbing up against one another, which makes them love hugging, essentially, right? And so then when they all hatch, they aren't solitary grasshoppers, but they still love to be together, right? And so then you get a locust swarm. And one etymologist described a locust hatch this way. He said, so far as the eye could see, they were boiling out of the ground. Every inch of open ground appeared to be boiling young locusts as pod after pod gave up its contents. You can see how that reflects the imagery here in our plague narrative, right? It's just, it does incredible devastation, and all of that swarming makes them extra hungry. So a locust can easily eat his body weight in food every day. Now, which, uh, according to kind of my rough math, meant that an average-side locust plague would eat the same amount of food in pounds as everybody in the United States eats in that same day. It does incredible devastation to whatever it touches. And now they are swarming all over Egypt. The land has turned black. Nothing is alive. Now, one of the themes that we haven't talked so much about yet is that in the plague narratives, many people have noticed echoes of Genesis, specifically in that the plagues are kind of like the opposite or the anti of creation. And so one commentator notes how specific words here in verse 15. They devoured all that was left, everything growing in the fields and on the fruit trees. The wording of those verses and other places in the plague narratives. are It's the same words used to describe God's acts of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. But here it is now, those things that were created in Genesis 1 and 2 are now being destroyed here in those first chapters of Exodus. It's kind of like the ten plagues are the playing the creation narrative in reverse. And so just kind of picture it. The land begins to smell of death from the blood water and all the dead frogs that were heaped into piles. Hail comes and destroys the trees, the animals, and any shelters. 
The locusts come and destroy and strip every green thing that is left. And so you look at the, lands, at the landscape, right? And it's just this apocalyptic vision of death. And then we get to the ninth plague. And what happens? Darkness. So thick it can be felt covers the land. And think about it, if we're kind of going in the opposite area, uh, you know, timeline of creation, what does the first day of creation bring? Genesis 1-3, let there be light. See, it's like God is reversing all of creation here in the land of Egypt, so that it goes back to a state, basically, before he you know, created anything. And Pharaoh believed, and what is the purpose of that? Pharaoh believed that he was king. He was God of his kingdom. Right? It was his foundation. I'm the reason why Egypt is so great. I don't need God. And remember what he says when Moses first shows up? He said, Yahweh, not heard of that God and doing all right without him. Right? And through the plagues, God is saying, well, not so fast, Pharaoh. Right? Not so fast. You think you've done all this without me? You think you can survive in Egypt without me? You think you can build a kingdom apart from me? Let me show you what that kingdom looks like. And it's chaos. You can't sleep because frogs keep jumping on your face. You can't eat because all the food's been destroyed. And the land reeks of death. For you might not have realized it, but you've been taking me for granted your entire life. I'm the foundation of every good thing that you've enjoyed. It's all been my grace that you've had this. You get rid of me, you get rid of everything good in your kingdom. Your ability to rule is only because I've raised you up. And one theologian put it this way, he said, the only reason you can slap God in the face is because he first put you into his lap. Behind everything is God. Behind the beauty of our mountains, the sunsets, the snow-capped peaks, is the God who made all of those things and gave us the ability to enjoy it. Behind that calm of sitting by a mountain stream and the rustling of the aspen leaves and the smell of the pine forest is the God who thoughtfully put every one of those things together with every detail so that we could enjoy it. Behind the joy of love and the thrill of your first crush, your first kiss, is a God who made you to experience those things. Behind the satisfaction of your family like watching in wonder as you hold this tiny little child in the palm of your hand and, and wonder, she came from us. And then so quickly grows up and you witness the wonder of seeing her bloom into your, her own unique person. And behind that is the God who created this ability for you to join with another and make a new life. Behind the goodness of everything is a God who made it and upholds it and gives it to us for us to enjoy it and to glorify him through it. And the question for every person in the world is, will you then live your life worshiping and loving that God? Or will you say, well, I don't need him because look at all that I have. Will you seek to enjoy the good things he's given us as he intended us to use them? Right? Living a life of praise, being thankful for his blessings, being rejo rejoicing for everything that he's done doing your work for his glory, following his priorities in life? Or will you be like Pharaoh, constantly thinking, well, no, I'm at the center. I'm God. I can do it how I want to do it. All this stuff that I've got, it's because of my work, my effort. I'm king of my own life. 
I'll make rules for my own life. Depends on what feels good. No one else can tell me what's right or wrong. Friends, that is so common today, but that life only ends in one way. The unraveling of everything into utter chaos and death. And because maybe you never had eyes to see it, God had surrounded you with his beauty and his love. Not so that you can think, oh, well, look, I'm doing pretty well without God. I don't need him. But that you would see how good God is to people even as wicked as Pharaoh. To show them his grace. And eventually, if you live your life that way, then I don't need God. He will give you that wish, a life apart from his blessing and love. But you discover it is oh so dark. But one last thing, just as we see echoes of creation at the beginning of the Bible, we also see a preview of the cross here. Jesus, in one sense, experienced the plagues himself. Matthew 26, 45. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. And at about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And then after that darkness, it wasn't the firstborn of Egypt that was killed, like we're going to see next week, but it was the firstborn of God that was killed, Jesus himself. And see, what is your hope? What is the hope for those that we love that seem to just cannot submit themselves to God? What is your hope when you keep screwing up and you know you need to change and yet you can't? It's that Jesus steps into the middle of our darkness, our rejection of God's good gifts, our trying to live life apart from God, and he grabs us and says, I'm going to give you my life. I'm going to die in the darkness so that you can live in the light. I'm going to take the plagues that you deserve so that you can have life. And friends, you get that by, again, looking to Jesus. He is your sure and steady foundation. He is the only thing you can build your life on, and it will last and not crumble. And he longs to show you his love. He's our firm foundation. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us look to Jesus in every part of our life, because uh, God, when we're honest, we are trying to live apart from you. We are trying to live according to our desires, and it's why... We're so stressed out, so anxious so many times. We're trying to live as if we think we know what is best for our life, and it's why maybe we're so bitter because things haven't turned out that way. Father, help us to see that everything is, that you are in front of us and you're behind us and your hand is on top of us. And help us not to resist that or to think we can somehow break free of that, but to see that that is the perfect place to be and to rest in knowing that you are with us and you have us wherever you want us, even when it's hard. But you're here, and you've conquered the deepest darkness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.